But we've got to 1 Corinthians 11, so here we go. 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, uh, starting at verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head and every woman who prays or prophesies with their head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off. She should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? question for you. What is your idea of a liberated woman? What does she look like? What does she do? How does she behave? How does she dress? How would you recognize her? Christ sets us free. How does that work out in practice when it comes to our gender? If both women and men are liberated in Christ, how do we relate to each other as liberated people? And if you are a liberated woman, how do you respond to those verses in 1 Corinthians 11 where it looks for all the world as if Paul is trying to reassert a hierarchy with God at the top and then in order of priority and maybe importance, Christ, then men and women at the bottom of the pile. That's what he seems to be driving at when he talks about God being the head of Christ, Christ being the head of the man and the man being the head of of the woman. There are those who suggest that the term head here actually means source. So Christ proceeds from God, the man is created by Christ, and and the woman, at least in the creation story, is created from the man. And what do you make of that? As a friend pointed out to me earlier in the week, men were created first and women second, but then in designing a work of art, you do a rough draft first and make all your mistakes with that so that the final version is the great masterpiece. Well, it's a good idea, but I'm not sure that's what Paul had in mind at this point. I'm not sure that his language of headship can be understood in terms of Christ originating in God, men originating in Christ, and the women coming from men. But if you find that helpful and it enables you to live with this passage as a liberated woman, then go for it, because lots of people interpret the passage in that kind of way. But for most of us, head means some kind of position of leadership or priority, even authority, as in head teacher, and it seems difficult to avoid that impression in this passage. 
And in Corinth, women suddenly found themselves enjoying a degree of liberty and liberation as Christians that they hadn't had before. And they were given expression to that in church. What were they doing precisely? Well, no one knows. And the debates swirled around without any consensus whatsoever. Were they removing the shawl that was traditionally worn as a head covering associated with modesty and submission to their husbands? Because as liberated women, they felt that symbolized a subjection from which they'd been released. Perhaps it had nothing at all to do with head coverings. Perhaps they were just unpinning and letting their hair down in public to express their feminine identity. Worshipping in a fairly unrestrained manner, as some of those women worshippers did in other temples in the city. Or maybe it was just confusion about, you know, is the home public or private space? If you wear your hair down at home, because that's the place where you can be relaxed, were they unpinning and letting their hair down at home? But when the church met in home, did that suddenly become public space? And so it wasn't appropriate to wear your hair down in that kind of setting. Or another suggestion is that they might have been cutting their hair short as a way of denying their femininity, consciously blurring the boundaries between male and female. So their liberation in Christ was a liberation from gender. We're free now to dress and act like men if we choose. All those scenarios have been suggested and argued and embraced by different people at different times. And the answer is, nobody knows because the evidence is ambiguous. Corinth was a cosmopolitan city. There would have been no prevailing dress code. Jewish, Greek, Roman attitudes to dress and deportment were all different, and they would all have found their advocates within the city. But speaking in extremely general terms, there was a perception that if men wore their hair long, That was a sign of being a little bit effeminate and perhaps a sign that you were gay. If women covered their head with a shawl or some other item of clothing, that was a sign of modesty and respectful submission perhaps to their husbands. In some quarters, a married woman always went out in public with her head covered and the only person who saw her with her head uncovered was her husband at home. It was the very public equivalent of wearing a wedding ring in those days. It's a sign, I'm a married woman, my husband is the man I respect and maybe defer to. We have pictures of women working in the marketplace with their heads uncovered, but with their hair pinned up, or with with a kind of, you know, bound up in some kind of shape. uh, Shows that they're respectable, shows that they're self-controlled, shows that they are um, actually not to be messed with. Uh, It's a sign of, you know, I'm doing this and you will respect me as a woman, but not necessarily because I'm a married woman. Having the hair down was perhaps a sign of being relaxed, even intimate, as might happen in the home, Uh, but perhaps with connotations of being a bit free and easy. Or if a woman wanted to impress a man, because the, the, the woman is the glory of the man and the woman has the capacity to make the man go, wow then she would let her hair down and impress her with her beauty. That was a sign of actually, you know, emphasising her attractiveness to a man. If her hair was cut really short, that could be a sign of denying her sexuality, perhaps even a tendency towards masculinity. 
And if the head were shaved, that could be a sign of shame or slavery. Very, very generally, grossly ignoring all the exceptions to those rules, that was how it might have been perceived. But the evidence isn't clear-cut. And you can always find examples of women adopting dress codes that clearly don't fit into these very broad brush categories. Then, as now, there were debates about what is, is and is not acceptable dress. Happens with us men sometimes. You know, is it okay to wear shorts? Is it okay to, to wear a tie or not? Dress codes change, and that brings debate with it. But never quite the same category of edginess that there is when it comes to how women should dress for some reason. So the other week, the former Canadian Prime Minister, Kim Campbell, provoked a furore when she tweeted this message. I am struck by how many women on television news wear sleeveless dresses, often when sitting with suited men. I've always felt it was demeaning to the women. And this suggests that I am right. Bare arms undermine credibility and gravitas, she said. And that tweet provoked a backlash uh, from other women who said they had the right to bear arms and did not agree with her at all. But there you go. Length of sleeve. Depth of neckline. Height of skirt length. As fashions come and go, the the claim that women should be free to dress how they want to express themselves, always raises the question in some people's minds, but is that respectable? Are they they somehow maybe even cheapening themselves or sending out signs that, you know, they're available or whatever? And in the ancient world, the debate focused very much on what women did with their hair. Covered, up, down, long, short. All these styles communicated different things to different people. And Paul, fearless man as he is, wades into the debate and expresses his own personal point of view. I don't think he was a misogynist, though many people have labelled him as such. Not for the first time this, this week, I find myself wondering what on earth possessed me to preach our way through 1 Corinthians. And both David and I would have felt a lot more comfortable if one of the ladies had been preaching or leading this morning. But there you go, our preachers and leaders are all mothers. And so please take the presence of men up the front here, not as a sign of male dominance, a reluctance to let women have their place at the front, but as a sign of our willingness to serve you, so you are released from the burden of leading or speaking or praying at the front of church. Genuinely, that is the spirit in which this has been done, not an attempt to keep you ladies in your place. Actually, perhaps to my surprise, I found a quotation from Indira Gandhi to be of immense help in opening up what I think might be a crucial issue in this passage. And she said, to be liberated, woman must feel free to be herself, not in rivalry to man, but in the context of her own capacity and her personality. I have to say I like that. Because there's a clear understanding that liberation frees women in their own capacity and personality, but it doesn't have to turn into a war between the sexes. But that, of course, raises questions of its own. In Christ, is it possible to be a liberated woman 
and a wife at the same time. How do you combine those two roles? Being liberated and at the same time you've got this man to whom you're supposed to show respect. In a good marriage, it certainly ought to be possible, but not necessarily easy to work out in practice. Is it possible to be a liberated woman and a mother? (laughs) That's an even harder combination to hold together. But from the wealth of my total lack of experience about being a mother, I wonder whether it might be possible, so long as we remember the principle which we've explored in some depth over recent weeks, Namely, as Christians, we are liberated, but we're called to use our freedom to serve. So a liberated woman will choose, if she has children, to serve them. A liberated woman will choose, if she's married, to respect and honour her husband. But both children and husband are called to remember that the lady in the house is a free woman who chooses to serve her family. And to recognise the cost, the sacrifice that's entailed with that. Because that decision encroaches on her liberty. And we're called to honour her for that reason. And it cuts both ways. We men might feel liberated as well. But that doesn't mean that we're free to pursue whatever pleasures we want to outside of the home. It doesn't mean that we're free to put our career first, expecting everybody else to cope. Liberated men are equally called to serve their wives and children. And to accept that this will impact on our own personal liberty. As free people, male and female, we are called to use our freedom in order to serve. So what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 11, as he was doing in the previous chapter, is to make the point that our own personal freedom does not make us independent of each other. And the issue at Corinth may have been that women were saying we're free and therefore we are independent of these men. And we don't know what form that expression of independence might have taken. It might have been, I'm going to let my hair down, don't care what other people think, of of what that represents, or how I behave, it's the expression of my freedom in Christ, and I'm entitled to do it. Or it might be they're saying, I'm going to cut my hair short, don't care what other people think, that's an expression of my freedom in Christ, because in Christ there is neither male nor female. And so it doesn't matter what other people make of how I wear my hair. Thank you very much. Paul is making the point that how you express yourself has an effect on other people, and that matters, actually. So we can't ignore how our own freedom of self-expression impacts on those around us. And he says that women ought to take that into account when it comes to covering or not covering their head or what they do with their hair. He talks about a woman ought to have authority on her head. In some way, shape or form, her head ought to be covered. For my money, that means that the hair probably should be pinned up uh, because that represents the woman's self-control. That represents, you know, her self-possession, a sign of her authority to act as as an independent woman. She's not free and easy. She's not necessarily submitting to her husband. But actually, you know, this is a sign that you will respect me as an independent woman. Had he wanted to say, you've got to have your kids covered because of the, the men in the church and you've got to submit to them, that would have been a sign of submission. But he says it's a sign of authority. So for my money, such as it is, I think he's saying, ladies, have your hair pinned up. Don't be free and easy. Don't have it hanging all down. Don't dazzle the men with your beauty. Just be aware, actually, you show respect by having your 
hair up. Use your freedom responsibly. Because freedom does not mean that we are independent of each other or free to disregard those around us. So yes, women are liberated in Christ. You ladies are free in Christ. Doesn't stop you being a wife or a mother. And Paul invites you to be aware of how expressing your freedom cannot but have an effect on the men who are present, not to mention any angels who also happen to be around that day. Placing my head on the block at this point, I have to say that you ladies need to be aware of the effect it has if you dress how you please, because it has an effect on those of us who are men and how we perceive you. And it's not good to say, well, that's, that's their problem, not mine. Without in any way condoning or any form of sexual harassment or excusing it. Just be aware, ladies, of how what you wear or what you don't wear can be found to be alluring and attention-getting to anyone who happens to be around. And you have no control over the kind of attention that you will attract. Before a word is spoken or a touch exchanged, what kind of signals are being sent out? What kind of impression do you give about the kind of person that you are? It's about being aware of how expressing my own freedom and identity might be read by other people and recognising that respect towards them is a good thing. So yes, Paul is concerned to demonstrate in this passage that men and women are free in Christ, liberated, but not thereby liberated from each other. Each of us is bound to the other. Men, we're not released from women. Women, you are not released from men. We have responsibilities to each other in terms of how we engage with each other and treat each other. And in terms of how we dress, that's part of it. Paul makes this point of mutual accountability, perhaps clumsily, by talking about headship and about how the man was created before the woman and how the woman was created for the man. In these post-feminist days, that comes across as pretty insensitive. And I can see how Paul would be blacklisted by a whole host of different organisations for saying that kind of stuff today. Yet the point he is making is that there is this interrelationship between women and men that can't simply be jettisoned in the name of women's lib. It's not about bringing women back into subjection. Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, made this point effectively. He said, had Paul meant to speak of rule and subjection, he would not have brought forth the instance of a woman or wife, but rather of a slave and a master. It is for a wife or woman as free, as equal in honour, that he's talking about here. It's about mutual dignity and respect. So as, as women are bound to men, so also men are bound equally to women. As Paul observes, the woman is not independent of the man, nor is the man independent of the woman. For as the woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. So in the creation story, the woman was formed out of the man. There is that link. There's a recognition on the part of all of our men that if it weren't for our mothers, we wouldn't be here at all. And so, in a sense, the man comes from the woman. The extent to which we men are dependent on our mothers throughout our lives, was shown by research conducted over a period of decades. In the early 1950s, 126 healthy young men were randomly selected from classes in Harvard and were given questionnaires about their perception of the love they felt from their parents. 
35 years later, 91% of participants who did not perceive themselves to have had warm relationships with their mothers had been diagnosed with midlife diseases such as coronary heart disease, high blood pressure, duodenal ulcers, and alcoholism. Only 45% of those who reported a warm relationship with their mothers had such symptoms. So ladies, if you wonder why your sons never grow up, it's because we're actually dependent upon you for our well-being throughout our entire lives. We never quite are released from our mothers. So men can be no more liberated from women than women can be from men. And it's not God's intention that ever we should be. Because when our interrelatedness is expressed in love, respect, honour and grace, it's then that we model what it means to be made in the image of God. And what does it mean to be liberated in Christ? It means being released from the guilt and burden of failure. It means being released from the intolerable pressure of other people's unreasonable expectations of how we should live our lives. It means being released from having someone else control your life, tell you who you are and what, how you ought to live. Christ sets us free. But he calls us all, men and women, to invest that freedom in building relationships of love and trust and commitment with and to each other. Where respect is given, not demanded. And where each voluntarily puts the other first. And for this to work well, it has to cut both ways. How you work that out in practice is down to you. In the cultural context of Corinth, it was about what you do with your hair, whether you cover it or wear your hair up or not. Nothing to do with hats, actually. Paul zeroed in on the issue of head coverings in Corinth and hairstyle because how women wore their hair had become an expression of their own personal freedom, which they were exercising without considering others or showing respect to others. For them, letting their hair down symbolised their unbridled self-expression. And Paul says, actually, as a sign of respect and authority, you're better having it up or covering your head. The challenge to us is to find ways of developing the kind of relationships where we set each other free to express ourselves in ways that convey love, honour and respect to those around us. Liberty in Christ is not about me taking my freedom and doing what I want with it. Liberty in Christ is all about me granting you your freedom and liberating you to be the person God has called you to be. And then you using your freedom actually to serve and honour and respect those around. Freedom is given, not taken in Christ. And it's used responsibly for the benefit of others. That's the Christian ethic that Paul is talking about in Corinthians that finds expression in this rather difficult passage about what you do with your hair. So let's pray. Lord, we are all made in the image of Christ. We are all worthy of honour and respect. And you have set us all free. Thank you that we don't need to be constrained by other people's expectations of us or other people's demands on us because we are accountable to you. Enable us to know that freedom 
from failure, from control, from being dominated. Help us to use that freedom responsibly, treating each other with respect and honour and grace. Help us, Lord, in this church, in our families, to model what it means to be made in the image of Christ, to honour each other and so bring glory to you. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.